the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at Let's Talk Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. Following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. Speaking in tongues is not the normal evidence of the Spirit's indwelling or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Nowhere in Scripture are we taught this. So then, of course, a very legitimate question to ask is why then did God have these new believing Gentiles speak in tongues to indicate that they had come to faith in Christ? And the answer is simply that these people were being shown that what had happened on Pentecost to Jewish believers was now happening here. John MacArthur addresses this quite well, I thought. He said this in his commentary on Acts. He said this passage does not teach that speaking in tongues is normally to be expected with the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit granted it on this occasion as visible proof that he indwelt these Gentiles. He knew that the Jewish brethren with Peter would be hard to convince So he granted the same manifestation experienced by Jewish Christians at Pentecost. It should be noted that here, as throughout Acts, speaking in tongues is a group, not an individual phenomenon. be part of our verse-by-verse broadcast today, and it is a significant word in Acts chapter 10. A monumental paradigm was shattered in this passage, and it left the Jewish believers who came with Peter amazed. And that was probably an understatement. Why were these Jewish Christians who were with Peter so amazed? We will get to that in a moment. Our teacher on our verse-by-verse broadcast is Steve Kreloff. He's the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We have two sessions left in our series that is titled, The Gospel Comes to the Gentiles. Now, perhaps you would like to go back and listen to some of these again. When we conclude our program today, I'll give you the information you need to sign up for the Verse by Verse podcast. Now, though, Pastor Steve is ready to start our program. It is true that in Romans chapter 10, The Apostle Paul says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But it isn't the praying that saves you. It's the faith expressed in that prayer that is the means of salvation. Cornelius and his friends, they didn't pray a prayer of salvation. They didn't go forward in a church setting. They just believed the gospel. And they were converted right then and there. And the proof that they were genuinely converted is revealed by what happened to them the moment they believed. And in telling us this, Luke reveals that the first evidence of the genuineness of their salvation was that, number one, the Holy Spirit came upon them. We read in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening 
to the message. Now, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that once a person comes to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit comes to permanently indwell them. That's taught in the New Testament letters very, very clearly. So we read in Romans 8, verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul said, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. All believers have the Spirit of Christ. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, the only exception, the only exception to the Holy Spirit immediately indwelling a believer was when the Samaritans came to believe in Christ back in Acts chapter 8. In those verses, Luke told us that although they were believers, they came to faith in Christ, the Lord did not give the Holy Spirit to them at the time of their conversion, but he waited until Peter and John, two apostles, arrived. So what's the reason for this exception? Now I'm going to do something that I don't know if I've ever done. I'm going to quote to you from me from a sermon I wrote in my notes. I always write who I'm quoting from. Strange to put Kreloff. But anyway, here's what I said to you when we had this message from Acts chapter 8. I said, and I repeat, why was there any delay between the time the Samaritans received Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell them? Certainly this isn't the norm because the New Testament letters make it abundantly clear that one receives the Holy Spirit immediately upon receiving Christ. So obviously... There was a reason God chose to do this differently in Samaria. And the reason for this is that he wanted to make a very clear announcement concerning the unity of his church. That what was going on in Samaria wasn't an unauthorized offshoot of Christianity that had been experienced in Jerusalem. He wanted everyone to understand that Samaritans were part of the same gospel and the same body of believers as the Jewish Christians in the city of Jerusalem. So this is why the church at Jerusalem sent to Samaria two apostles, Peter and John, to see if the Samaritans had truly accepted Christ. And once these two apostles were satisfied that they were true believers, they laid their hands on them and prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and they did. Listen, what happened in Samaria, that wasn't the norm. It was very unique. It was really part of the transitional nature of the early church and the book of Acts where we read about things that were never intended to be repeated again. And therefore, they are not for today. Today, God doesn't delay in the giving of his spirit because there's no need to do this. His church has been established for over 2,000 years and we have the normative teaching for believers in the New Testament letters where we learn that the Spirit is given to believers at the very time of their conversion. And what happened with Cornelius and his friends was in keeping with that norm. They believed on Christ, and immediately the Spirit of God came to indwell them. Question is, how did Peter know this? How did Peter know that the Spirit had fallen on these Gentiles? After all, the Holy Spirit is an invisible being. That's why he is spirit. It's not physical, and therefore, he isn't observable to us. We don't see the Holy Spirit. So what was it that made Peter so certain that the Spirit had come upon Cornelius and his circle? 
Well, we read on verses 45 to the very beginning of verse 46. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Now, the first thing Luke says is that all of the circumcised believers who were with Peter were amazed at the outpouring of the Spirit upon these Gentiles. And by circumcised believers, he is referring to the six Jewish Christian men who remember they had accompanied Peter from Joppa, traveling with him up to Caesarea. And notice what it was that so amazed these Jewish believers. It was, as the verse says, and I read it again, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now, notice the last word of this sentence, the word also, because that's key to being able to understand why these Jewish Christians were so amazed at the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. The word also is very significant. It was because they were observing what was happening to these Gentiles, something that happened to the Jewish apostles back on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They started speaking in tongues. So what they're observing now The also is that, hey, this happened to them, and it's happening here right now. It happened on the day of Pentecost to Jewish Christians, specifically the apostles and the early church, 120 believers. Now it's happening to the Gentiles. What he's referring to is Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4, which tells us about them speaking in tongues. It says, and when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together. That's all 120 believers in the upper room in Jerusalem. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, This passage in Acts chapter 2 goes on to reveal, and we study this extensively, so I don't need to go into all the details, but it goes on to reveal that these tongues were real languages, real languages spoken by different people throughout the Roman Empire. These were not ecstatic, unintelligible utterances, but they were languages, human languages, that these Jewish men and women had never previously studied or learned. And this was the way that God chose to communicate that the Spirit had come upon them. And that is exactly, folks, what the Jewish men from Joppa were now observing in the lives of Cornelius and his Gentile family and friends. They were speaking in languages never before known by them. Now, contrary to what some think, speaking in tongues is not the normal evidence of the Spirit's indwelling or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Nowhere in Scripture are we taught this. So then, of course, a very legitimate question to ask is, why then did God have these new believing Gentiles speak in tongues to indicate that they had come to faith in Christ? And the answer is simply that these people were being shown that what had happened on Pentecost to Jewish believers was now happening here. John MacArthur addresses this quite well, I thought. He said this in his commentary on Acts. He said, this passage does not teach that speaking in tongues is normally to be expected with the coming of the Spirit. 
The Spirit granted it on this occasion as visible proof that he indwelt these Gentiles. He knew that the Jewish brethren with Peter would be hard to convince, so he granted the same manifestation experience by Jewish Christians at Pentecost. It should be noted that here, as throughout Acts, speaking in tongues is a group, not an individual phenomenon. Now today, when you believe on Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit does immediately come to indwell you. You may not be aware of that, but that's what happens. That's what the scripture says. We take it by faith rather than how we feel. However, if the Holy Spirit does indwell you, there will be eventually evidence of his indwelling presence in your life. It won't be by speaking in tongues, but there will be certain changes in your behavior. Like what? Well, for one thing, there will be conviction of sin, your sin. The Holy Spirit will convict you so that certain things that you used to do and be very comfortable doing, no longer now are you comfortable doing it. You did that as an unbeliever, it never really bothered you. Now it bothers you because the Spirit of God is changing you from the inside out, conforming you to become more and more like Jesus Christ in terms of character. The Apostle Paul speaks of these changes, calls them godly fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. He wrote in Galatians 5, starting in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, these are the changes that will come about, not perfect fruit, but some fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul said against such things, there is no law. So there will be changes in your life. If you know Christ, there will be changes. You'll be convicted of sin. You'll say, I used to do this. I can't do this anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore. Another evidence of the Spirit's indwelling you is that you'll have an understanding of the Word of God so that the truths that once made no sense to you now make perfect sense because the Holy Spirit guides believers into understanding the Bible's truths and he protects us from error. This doesn't mean we perfectly understand scripture. It doesn't mean that we now magically read the Bible and every single sentence in scripture makes perfect sense to us. It means that the essential doctrines of the faith, we understand. When you hear about Christ, you're not puzzled. You understand who he is. You can see it. It makes sense to you. First John 2, 26 and 27 say this, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you, John said. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. That anointing is the Holy Spirit. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now listen, as I said, John is not saying that we understand everything the Bible says. Nor is he denying that we need gifted teachers to help us understand scripture. After all, John is a gifted teacher who is saying this. So he's not eliminating human teachers. What he is saying is that ultimately it is the indwelling spirit in us who guards us from deceptive error concerning the essential doctrines of our faith and who enlightens us so that we do comprehend scripture, especially the doctrines of Christ and the gospel message. 
Third evidence of the Spirit's indwelling you is that you will have a love for other believers in Christ. 1 John again, 3, 23 and 24. John says, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. See, the Bible makes it clear that unbelievers hate believers. Some of them are quite courteous friendly to believers, but in their hearts, they hate believers. Being the children of the devil, they are hostile to the children of God. Once you would begin to share what you believe and hold to, you would see their hostility. But one of the marks of true conversion is that you no longer hate God's people. You love them with the love that is willing, not just to say, I love you, but I will sacrifice for you when it's not even convenient. I'll sacrifice for you. I'll serve you. And you love them because the Spirit of God abides in you, and He's the one who sheds in our hearts God's love. So I ask you, does your life give evidence that the Holy Spirit indwells you? Do you see any spiritual fruit of Christ-likeness in you? Now, all of us can say this, I'm not all that I want to be. That's a given. We understand that. But have you seen any progress towards Christ-likeness any spiritual growth, that's the issue. And when you hear God's word being taught, especially the essential truths about Christ and the truths that make up the gospel, does it make sense to you? And do you have a love in your heart for other believers, even if some of them are difficult to like? Do you love them? All of these are evidences of the Holy Spirit indwelling you, which means that if these things are true in your life, you have been converted to Christ. No doubt about it. But without these evidences, I mean none at all, you're still lost. You've never been converted. Your sins need to be forgiven by Christ. Now going back to Acts 10, the fact that the Holy Spirit came upon these Gentiles, that's the first evidence that they were genuinely converted, just as their Jewish brethren had been. But as Luke continues telling us about the experience of Cornelius and his family and friends, he gives us a second evidence of the genuineness of their salvation, which is that they submitted to the waters of baptism. They submitted to being baptized. We read, continuing in verse 46 to the first part of verse 48, Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now being convinced that these Gentiles had truly received the Holy Spirit because they had truly believed on Christ for salvation, Peter now asks a question. He wants to know If anyone knows, and he's addressing this to the Jewish Christians with him, if anyone knows of any legitimate reasons why these Gentiles should not be baptized by water now. Once again, notice how Peter words this. At the end of verse 47, he states, just as we did. In other words, he's calling for these Gentiles to be baptized just as Jewish Believers were baptized when they came to faith in Christ, just as we 
meaning we Jews who believed on Messiah, just as we were baptized when we believed. See, what Peter is trying to establish in everyone's mind is that these Gentiles now have the same spiritual status as Jewish believers. There is absolutely no spiritual difference between a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian. Now, of course, there will always be cultural and ethnic and language differences amongst people who believe in Christ, but all who believe in Christ have exactly the same spiritual status before God. There are no haves and have-nots in the body of Christ. There are no first-class, second-class citizens in the body of Christ. There are no favorites and non-favorites in the body of Christ. In Christ, there is absolute spiritual equality amongst all believers. This is the meaning of Galatians 3.28. Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And because of this spiritual equality, as evidenced by the same Holy Spirit coming upon these believing Gentiles as he did upon the believing Jews, Peter wants to know. He wants to know if anyone knows of a reason why these Gentiles shouldn't be baptized as their Jewish brethren were baptized. And it would appear that what Peter is referring to once again is what took place years earlier on the day of Pentecost when there were about 3,000 Jewish people from all around who were in the city of Jerusalem that day who came to faith in Christ and they were immediately baptized in water. I remind you, Acts 2.41, so then those who had received his word, that's the word that Peter preached to them, the gospel, were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And this is what Peter is calling for to take place in the lives of these Gentiles. And so, as verse 48 says, he ordered them to be baptized, meaning that he told the six Jewish men from Joppa, go baptize them in the name of Jesus. Now, there are several important truths that we need to see about these Gentiles being baptized. First of all, the fact that the text tells us that it was only after these people came to faith in Christ that Peter made sure that they were baptized affirms the biblical teaching that baptism is only for believers in Christ, and it is to follow an individual salvation. And the reason for this is simply because their baptism is a public confession of their faith in Christ. This is precisely what Jesus taught in the Great Commission. He said in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then he explains somewhat of the process of this. It starts by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's how you make a disciple. You share the gospel, you lead them to faith in Christ, and you baptize them. So contrary to what some teach, Jesus very clearly intended only for true believers, those he called his disciples, his followers, to be baptized as a public confession of their faith in him. The waters of baptism symbolically picturing their identification with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Secondly, and this is most important, these Gentiles evidence that they were born again by submitting to being baptized. 
Though the text doesn't say this explicitly, no doubt Peter instructed them. He had to give them some instruction as to what they should do concerning baptism now that they believe in Jesus. And out of obedience and submission to their new Lord, these Gentiles submitted to being baptized. They were baptized. Now listen, they certainly didn't get baptized because Peter said and intimidated them as an apostle, go get baptized. I remind you that many of these people were Roman soldiers. They're not being intimidated by a little Jewish guy saying, go be baptized. They were not pushovers. They willingly submitted to this. It's very likely that their baptism was the very first Christian baptism they had ever seen. But even though all this apparently would seem quite foreign to them, different to them, and they may very well have been, I would assume they were out of their comfort zone, they did as Peter told them, in obedience to Christ, and they were baptized. A very interesting broadcast, to be sure. I appreciate that Peter was trying to establish that the Gentiles who heard the gospel and put their faith in Christ now have the same spiritual status as Jewish believers. It might seem obvious today that there is absolutely no spiritual difference between a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian, or any Christian. However, in Acts chapter 10, Peter had to clarify that the Gentiles were equally a part of the body of Christ. Of course, there will always be cultural and ethnic and language differences among people who believe in Christ. But all who believe in Christ have exactly the same spiritual status before God. At the beginning of the broadcast, I did mention the Verse by Verse podcast. You will find that by heading over to versebyverseradio.org and finding the podcast link on the right side of the page. That's versebyverseradio.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.